Hey, Husky fans, welcome back to Fourth and Inches, a Husky podcast. My name is Trevor Mueller. With me is Coach V, UW and Kayla Olin. Guys, the Washington Huskies are Pac-12 champs. They shut up everybody around the college football universe. They were built for this. They said at the beginning of the year, they backed it up all year. Coach, you said you weren't going to see a loss, and you were absolutely right. Washington is the number two team in the nation. They have a rematch with Texas to go to the national championship. It's really hard to put into words uh, how I feel about this team, how I feel about this season, how I feel about the players who came back. Um, But to beat Oregon the way that they did by really taking it to them in the first half, having a really bad pass interference call that set up a touchdown to make it close to go down to come back and win the game. And I, I just, I can't be more proud of this team. And uh, coach, you were there. Tell me what it was like. First off, um, thank you for crediting me with predicting that we weren't going to lose. Um, I feel it's really important to get it out there that I believed this whole time. And despite the fact that my voice is pretty much shot, um, I gave it everything I, I could, I could give uh, stood up most of the game screamed my head off, but I will say this. As loud as the Duck fans were on Twitter, these idiots were even louder in person. And my buddy and I were just walking around. We're waiting up to meet some friends, and we saw all these cocky Duck fans just shouting at any Husky fan they saw. And uh, my buddy was like, what a bunch of jerks. And I was like, they'll see. They'll see. (laughs) We uh, we started off the evening uh, meeting uh, some people upstairs that uh, some kids that I coach and their dad just happens to be uh, a very famous uh, UW former football player who we hung out with for a while before he went on stage to do an interview with Pac-12 Network. The kids were excited they, you know, the, the Duck fans were walking by and they didn't really have anything to say to our guy, but throughout the stadium there's just a whole lot of cockiness a whole lot of hooting and hollering they were doing chants it was like a soccer match for them and i just never felt like we were going to lose this game and if you watch the players warming up they were loose they were you know extremely pumped up but they were just loose you saw uh, jalen mcmillan running around with no knee brace yes and uh i was like that's it man (laughs) lights out baby so it was an electric atmosphere. I will say this. I've never been to a football game where it was definitely, definitely loud for both offenses. Awesome. It was so loud. And, it, it, you know, we we came out, we had the ball first, and they were making a lot of noise. Like, oh, geez, I thought we were pretty even in this place. And then when they got the ball back, it was just the same thing. It was just tidal waves of emotion and, and, and noise. And it was just one of the coolest nights ever. Would you say the attendance was 50-50 or because I think from the TV's perspective, because Oregon wears green, I think it looked a little bit That's more in exactly favor of it. Oregon. We were uh, we were trying to do a head count, just kind of looking around our section and then to the other side because we were on the, the mainly Husky side. And it's just that that nasty neon color sticks out more. But when we started thinking about it, we started looking around and like, man, this is pretty even. Like we hardly saw any ducks in our section or on our side. We had Spencer Hawes in our section leading the cheers, awesome. standing up, getting everybody to, you know, stand up and wave. And we ended up getting a picture with him. And it, I mean, you know, it was pretty cool. Um, a lot of former players were there. Saw Kelsey Plum running around. We saw Detlef. We saw, 
Um, Jordan Reffitt from a distance. Uh, Lincoln Kennedy was there. It was just, it was, and Mario Bailey was there somewhere, obviously. We didn't, we didn't get to see Mario, but the alumni, you know, the former players, they really, really just couldn't wait to be there and be a part of this. And I mean, it was pretty even from what I saw, but you could tell when, when people were screaming and, and trying to get the offenses off the field with their voices and they're, and they're just affecting the game. I don't think either team had an advantage. It was just incredibly loud. Kelly, your overall thoughts on this win? I cried. <laughs> it takes a lot to make me cry. I don't recall. I, cry, I The only time I've ever cried in sports was when I played. And after like a heartbreaking loss, like to like end to go to state or on senior night, a sports team has never made me cry. And I think that this game with so much on the line for all of these kids who came back, by the time this comes out, I believe it will be the one-year anniversary of Michael Penix announcing he was coming back. And again, Trevor, you and I sat through that four and eight team and we had to talk about it. And, you know, Leah has also, a lot of people have experienced the 0 and 12 and to see where this team has come in two years, just from that four and eight and to see it on the field and to see the ceiling that Washington has. I wasn't like coach V. I didn't say (laughs) they were going to go undefeated. I said I would have been Happy with an eight and four just because they had such a tough November schedule. And I wasn't sure it was going to happen with Oregon, but I've never been so proud of this team, of the coaching staff to be a fan. And it's kind of bittersweet, I think, as well, being the last ever Pac-12 championship game. So I think there was that too. Not only that, but they beat Oregon twice. I mean, come on. Leah, you had the misfortune of not being able to watch this game live and having to somehow put your mind on a test instead of on this game. Tell me what that experience is like and your overall thoughts on where this team is at number two in the nation. Yeah. I, I wish very much that I could have gotten out of the test or taken it early, but unfortunately I'm in a mental health profession and my professor for this particular course has a lot of uh, lack of empathy or understanding, which is perfect for mental health. Um, So I knew, I knew that I was not going to have that as part of my journey. So I told everyone, everyone on this podcast, most people knew that I was taking an exam. Did that stop people from texting me? No, it did not. And um, JCAP, shout out JCAP. He's the king. He's the goat. JCAP was giving me Leah style confidence numbers, like about every eight minutes or so. Cause like if I could, if I was getting texts from one person, I knew I could trust him to be pretty honest, but he never dipped below 94%. Not once. Maybe no, once it was at 92% when the pass interference that wasn't pass interference was called on Jabbar. But uh, overall it was, it was bananas to be like, to think like the one time, the one class I absolutely could not skip was during the Pac-12 championship game. And I looked it up at the beginning of the term and I was like, if our season goes the way I think and hope it's going to go, that's going to be super crappy to not be able to watch that live. At the same time, like I'm in the middle of my exam. My exam did not start until 8.30 because the first part of my test at six o'clock was listening to presentations from other groups. And we had to like be on teams, on camera. And like the test started in earnest at 8.30. And around that time was when the fourth quarter began. At about nine o'clock, I started getting texts from my old boss, 
from people that I used to work with at Bush School, like people from all walks of my life being like, how excited are you? Oh my gosh, every time the Huskies have an important game, you have to be taking a test. Um, just amazing. And I would just be like, hey, um, I'm on question 45 of 60. I will get back to you in 20 minutes. And I've had a chance since to watch it. And what a, what an amazing um, feat and an accomplishment by the staff, by these kids. There's nothing that the staff can't do. There's nothing that the staff can't prepare for. And I I love us being dogs. I just do like we were nine and a half point dogs against Oregon in the championship game. We were 14 point dogs at Autumn last year. And wouldn't you know it, we're opening up as four point dogs in our college football playoff game against Texas. And I love it. I hope it goes up. I'm excited for what this team can accomplish, especially now that we get three weeks off to get our bodies right, to get DJ right, rest Mike, get, give J-Mac a little bit more rest to make him even more precise with his cuts. I think this only benefits us and it only benefits the likes of our defensive, offensive, special teams, head coach, staff, to just get everything completely right to have an epic matchup against Coach K, Sark, and the Texas Longhorns. Leah, didn't you miss the Oregon game last year in Austin? I did. Thank you for noticing. I Okay, so you're not watching this Texas game, right? I watched last year's Texas game. That's true. And I was, I was in attendance. That's how I met Trevor and Jake. I was in attendance uh, against the Oregon game in Husky Stadium this year, so... I will be out of school for the on January first, so I'm and there's no excuse for me not to watch that game. But you know, if things go poorly, I, I I'm not above Trevor telling me, you know, you need you need to you need to leave the house, you need to like go to Canada. I don't know. Like Trevor <laughs> did that, he did that to me in last year's Apple Cup, and it served us very well. So getting into the game, Washington jumps out to that ten point lead. Washington has a drive that takes almost the the full first half of the first quarter to go get three uh, and then immediately gets a three and out on the Ducks and goes down and scores a touchdown. What I really loved about the beginning of this game is they really made a concerted effort to get some of those guys who hadn't been on on this on rhythm with Mike involved with high percentage throws, namely Jalen McMillan, his his quick little throw that he got and ended up taking for a first down. You could see the springiness in him at that moment. And man, you're going on to have almost 140 yards in that game after missing basically the bulk of the season. I, I just thought that was really great. Coach, you were there. That first those first two drives uh and the ensuing defensive possessions. Tell me what was going through your head and what you saw. I was super excited because um I've been highly critical of us not taking what was there and living outside the hashes. First couple drives, they really just were dinking and dunking. They were using a lot of motion. They um, used some quick hitch, quick slant, quick screen, orbit motion with pole, just trying to get guys loose. And, and what they were doing is kind of stretching the defense out. And then they would hit up the zone run or they would go guard tackle, counter, pole. Um, and they were just, they were, were running the ball against really light boxes. Oregon really was off balance those first couple drives because they, they had to defend every inch of the field, which is what I've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks now. You have to force teams to cover all of your guys, every inch of the field, every blade of grass, so to speak, because that's when you're indefensible. Nobody can defend this offense if we're doing that. And so obviously the run game was a huge factor, but the run game was super effective because they couldn't just load up the box. They could not put eight in there to stop DJ 
because they had four, five, six guys running around um, in, in in on pass routes that they just couldn't cover. They weren't capable of covering us one on one. And when they tried to zone up and do different things, it just we just found the holes anyway. So I was really proud of the game plan, especially with with you know Oregon having an extra day to prepare. I mean, they coach circles around these guys. Yeah. After Oregon's second possession where they went for another three and out, the play call disparity was 26 to six at that point. Um, Kayla, at that point in the game, Washington ends up going down and giving up a field goal and then turn around, uh, turning around and scoring in four plays in less than two minutes. What did you see on that? possession where uh, it ended up being a Jeremy Bernard four-yard pass from Dylan Johnson at first I was like wait Dylan Johnson just throw that yeah he did yeah. he did I w- it was kind of one of those like okay they are pulling out all the stops they are going to run up the score after comments that were said about what they wanted to do to Penix about how they shouldn't have been the team that won in October I thought that it was going to just be a boat race, which I haven't felt in a very, very long time this season. Since Cal? Yeah, since Cal. And, I mean, that drive, it was great because it ate up a lot of clock. And I was like, okay, we're figuring out the whole clock management as well. That's great. And then, ultimately, I mean, Oregon scored very, like, fairly, not quickly after that, but a lot quicker than I think we would have hoped as well as that extending penalty that Leah was talking about. And I think that that was pretty much the turning point for the game. So what should have been a turning point for Washington after going up 17, three, I almost think that it kind of, I don't know if maybe coach can answer this a little bit differently. I almost felt like they kind of let their foot off the gas after that touchdown. And so I liked it. I was happy about it, but they didn't look like the same offense until about the fourth quarter. It was kind of interesting because uh, the first couple drives, it was very apparent that our defense was trying to take away the short stuff. They were playing, they were doing some games. It was kind of cool to see Cam and Asa back at the same time. Yeah. Which was just, it was incredible because, you know, now you got Dom, now you got Mish, and, 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 and I really felt like they were able to protect EJ a little bit more. But basically in those first two drives, everything they tried to do, you know, the dink and the dunk of the short, they were jumping those lanes. They were jumping the seams. They were coming down and playing robber with their safety in the middle of the field. They were doing so many different things to kind of slow Oregon down. You would see they would try to get Bo on a rollout. They'd have somebody in his face. He'd yes. hold it. He'd have to bring it back. He wasn't nearly as effective when he can't play on time. And he has to improvise a little bit. He's probably going to take off and run because, you know, it's just not his game. But in the third, on the on the Oregon's third possession, we saw like, the soft, you know, backed off coverage, rear its ugly head. And they're like, oh, well, you're going to let us get in rhythm now. Here we go. And they went down and they, you know, they got points. But, um, you know, it's tough to defend that team. But my goodness, I really thought they should have just kept doing what they were doing until it didn't work. So, uh, you know, they started chewing clock up. They started, you know, possessing a little bit more. They kind of took a couple possessions away from us. Um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I have some some very strong thoughts on the Oregon possession before the half. Yeah. Honestly, we missed a lot of opportunities. We should have probably had 30 by halftime, and it was very frustrating that we only had 20. 
Uh, Jim McMillan connects for his first explosive play of the game on the 45 yard touchdown, uh, 45 yard pass that set up the touchdown to Jeremy Bernard. Leah, getting to watch that, knowing what it had happened, and knowing that he had the game, uh, when he caught that and you got to see the athleticism, how he absolutely just cooked uh, that safety, that had to feel great. Yeah. All right. It's nice to be able to watch a game when you know what's going to happen because then I don't have to, you know, text you guys what my mental stability is. But just super impressed all around. Just like the the varied play calling at certain times of the game, obviously, as Kayla spoke to, it kind of went away for certain parts of the game. But for the most part, I felt like we were hitting different guys and mixing it up and not being very predictable, which is what we criticized our play calling for all season long. And I I didn't see that for the most part. I saw a lot of mixing it up in this game. All right, coach, let's talk about it. The the touchdown play that got Oregon to 20 to 10 going into half. Looking at what happened in that, you have a Ted Johnson where there's a missed tackle. Um, he's able to get loose, get down the field for 39 yards. Incomplete, well, a 12-yard pass to Troy Franklin, gets to Washington to the 24-yard line. You have an incomplete pass. Then you have a poorly thrown ball with would you say almost textbook defensive back play? He had his hands in his uh, so, on him, but his 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 head is turned. Talk me through that. Well, first we need to go back to the very first play. Okay. Now Oregon was going where we were standing. We were at the forty yard line on the home side, so Oregon's you know going left to right for us. Uh, first play, uh, Bo gets flushed out, or he kind of rolls out to his right. And the Oregon right tackle does a WWE takedown on Braylon Trice in front of everybody, just takes him to the ground, like hooks him with the shoulder pads and drives him into the turf. Obviously it was a hold, didn't get called. They get the ball to, you know, Taz in the middle of the field and he breaks off a big play. The incompletion, um, they hemmed Bo into the pocket. He had nowhere to go. He's backpedaling. He's in the very middle. He's in the definition of in the in the in the pocket, and he airmails a ball. Oh 20, yeah, twenty yards past everybody just to get rid of it and not take a sack. Uh, we've seen our own team get called for intentional grounding on that very recently, where it's just he's throwing it away, and they said, you know what, that's intentional grounding. We got even called on an offside uh, against the Cougs, but that was completely let go. The pass interference play that you're talking about that got him into scoring range right there. Jabbar had locked him down so easily that he was facing the quarterback. He was looking back for the ball. And when he saw the ball sail over their heads, he just kind of held them up real quick and then celebrated. The dude was looking at him the entire time. And as soon as he celebrated, he threw the flag. If that is not, I'm sorry, I hate being this guy. But if that is not the very definition of somebody calling down and saying, we need to make this game a little bit closer. People are going to start start uh, start tuning out. Like this was on the verge of being a blowout early, and that, and then with Oregon getting the ball to start in the second half, that was their freaking lifeline. Three yep. penalties, uh, two penalties not called, one call that should never have been called, and they ended up eking out a touchdown before the half, gave them new life. Me and thousands of other people on the other side of the stadium were yelling screaming on every one of these plays it was plain from from the stands from row 20 it was definitely plain on the field they just decided to steer it a certain way that's absolutely my my perspective too of just like and I was hearing about it from Jay Cap at halftime he gave me an update and was like 
it was obvious that they weren't going to do it. And then they kind of looked around and it was like, after, after everything, if you have to pass on your parents, usually you call it right away. You had to think about it and consult internally. I don't even know, but like that just looked really sus. And considering that was like the start of 21 straight for Oregon, there, there are things that you, that you just can like hold because it's not clear. And that, I mean, I can make my peace with the not calling the holding because we can call holding on every play. That was very egregious. But like, if you just don't call, the pass interference that should never have been called it, it i mean even the announcers they they go and they're like oh yeah what yeah. did you think and they're like yeah that that was a crazy ass call that the, should never be called the referee that consults on the broadcast said said that he thought it was not even close to a pass interference yep correct and kayla you're in that fraternity how bad does it have to be for the in tv official to take that stand um I mean, it's hard because that person, the rules expert, gets to see five different angles and they get to see it from a different perspective and they get to see it in real time. Then they get to see it in slow motion. So, I mean, yes, because he's just giving his opinion on it. I think what's hard, too, about it is, I mean, the delay is because you're taught as an official, see the play. Did I have something, especially on a pass interference, you could have a defensive hold. He has to say, he has to think, was the ball in the air? Is that going to be a pass interference? Is it going to be a defensive hold? What's he going to call? And so I think that's also the reason for some later flags, especially on pass interferences as well. But I mean, I can't comment on my opinion on that call, but I mean, the rules experts, when they chime in, they're asked their opinion. It's not that they were purposely calling him out. Moving on to the the second half, obviously it's now 20 to 10. Oregon gets the ball, marches down the field, scores the touchdown. Then we have the two interceptions. This was the only thing that, uh, is it Brandon Dorless? Um, got correct throughout the whole game is they did get Mike off his spot and he missed a wide open Roma Dunze. Um, other than that, he had uh, no effect on the game. He ends up throwing the interception kind of in between two guys. Rome was running wide open for a first down. And then Mish Powell makes just an absolutely unbelievable play two plays later to get the ball back where he pushed the receiver out of bounds, made sure his feet were in. And I don't know if you saw it on the replay, but as Bo is letting it go, if you look, Asa Turner's on the sidelines. And as it's leaving his hand, Asa's hands are in the air, knowing that it's going to be an interception by, uh, by Mish Powell. Trevor, we never asked you because that brings up a great point of the roller coaster emotions for Duck fans and then Husky fans. Are you still living at home? I mean, you're not in your usual space. Did, did Miranda just say, hey, sorry? Oh, the, <laughs> the baby evicted me out of my uh, my warm, <laughs> comfortable uh, recording area. I'm now in the garage. Well, you know, because we you have... didn't talk about your game day experience and you have oh. the most <laughs> interesting household. So I was like, oh, no, Trevor, where are you? You staying at Jake's? No, no. Uh, so I had, uh, it was, it was my sister-in-law came up as well. And then we had uh, some of my friends over and, and unfortunately they were either just football fans or duck fans. And so I spent a lot of time with uh, my duck fan and, and we did a lot of conversating and uh, we gave some hugs at the end. So we kept it light. We kept it fun. Um, I think it was for the best because when I watch it with just her or or, you know, with, with another Husky fan, I can, I can tend to spiral out a little bit. 
that's kind of how I was feeling when you're talking about that interception is we were so, I was so sad. I was like, Oh no, they're going to capitalize on this. And then Mish came in clutch. Yeah. And honestly, like at that point I was feeling pretty good. And then of course you have the turnover on downs and then Oregon takes the lead. Um, I'm, I am wondering Leah at this point when you're getting percentages from J cap, how is he not getting a little nervous uh, when Washington goes down uh, 2421 or 2420. I so I will be really clear with you. I told him specifically not to tell me what exactly is going on in the game, just percentage and vibes. Okay. Because I knew that because I was still in that class and I was like, oh my gosh, if I'm too invested, I might as well just have my iPad out watching the game if like he's telling me exactly what's going on. So okay. when I I'm just tracing back, he the lowest he ever went was 92%. Coach, what was the vibe uh, in the stadium at that point? Anger. I think people were still pissed off about the first half ended. And it, there was just a very long, now you have to understand like that final drive, then halftime, then Oregon got the ball. It was like an hour before, you know, between our offensive drives. I mean, there was a very long time in between. They came out, they didn't look sharp. On the interception by Mike, yeah, Rome was, you could see him just on that crosser. He was breaking free. But when Mike got pressure at his legs, he had to kind of like, I think he got caught in between trying to make the throw and trying to throw it away. But there was also a guy standing behind, you know. And Jeremy was there as well. Yeah. So it was just a bad, you know, obviously a bad situation. He wants to make a play. Probably don't need to throw that. Um, Didn't want to take the sack, but I felt like, you know, at that point, people were just really frustrated. And then two plays later, obviously, Mish gets the ball back and we're like, okay, okay, we're good. Because I feel like that was, you know, that was like shaking off the rust that first, you know, the first drive with the interception. And then when they got the ball back, it's like, okay, we can possess this thing a little bit longer and kind of get back in rhythm. You know, the thing is with that friend that I was just talking about, as we're watching the game, even when Oregon went down and took the lead, the thing that he kept saying, and it really brought me back to some of the Peterson era stuff towards the end. He said that, everything with Washington looked really, really easy on offense. And for Oregon, everything was really, really hard. And over the course of a game, over the course of a season, well, I, I mean, let's be honest, it was pretty easy for Oregon all season. But over the course of the game, that tough, everything is hard, ended up coming back and biting them. And even when Washington was down, I was very stressed, but I was still very confident that Washington was going to win this game just because as long as Washington was able to get back on rhythm, I had a really good feeling that they were going to figure out a way to win this. The the great thing about it is throughout this game, and I know, you know, first of all, when you're playing a top five team, not everything is going to work all the yep. time. But what we did see was the offensive line dominating. I thought they were the most physical group on the entire field, both teams. Yep. And Mike was doing his thing. He had all of his receivers back. They were giving him time to throw. He was layering throws mm-hmm. in between coverage. He was throwing it past people's ear holes. He was throwing with anticipation to the outside. All that stuff we did to kind of get everybody in rhythm, get the juices flowing. You saw the return of uh, Jalen Polk after a couple of games. He made some savage blocks on the perimeter and then he just oh made my god practices. i saw devin cope in that game pancake two people out of bounds let's go 
everybody on the perimeter was acting like they were they were extra offensive linemen getting people loose you think we got three yards all of a sudden you know mcmillan skips down the sidelines for 11 12 yards and it's just like oh my god the secondary of the ducks was not their strong point to begin with <laughs> and they were just spinning in circles it was a beautiful thing to watch that's what gave me confidence that's what i knew that as long as we were just kind of got back in a rhythm we were spreading them out so far. They weren't going to be able to stop the run and the pass. Yeah. And going all the way back to the first touchdown of the game, Roma Dunze was the reason why Dylan Johnson was so open. He crushed that, uh, that nickel cornerback, uh, which led to a one-on-one with probably the victim of that day. And I don't know his name, number 33, all number 33 did all day for the ducks was just get brutalized by Washington ball carriers. Um, Dylan Johnson hit him as he went into the end zone. Mike hit him, lowered his shoulder on him for a first down. And Dylan Johnson hurt his ancestors on the play down at the one yard line where he forearm shimmied him to the ground. And let's not forget when Mike gave the stiff arm on the keeper to get the first down, I yep. was like, oh, we are just we are just tougher than this team, man. Oh, if my gosh. Stiff arming people into the tur- turf, then, you know, good luck. I, I really encourage with the fact that Mike is keeping the ball more and he's being more – he's using mm-hmm. athleticism more. Um, this is that time of the season where it's like, dude, we got to win any, any way necessary. Um, no- <laughs> I coined this uh, – I was talking to Jake on, on the phone, and I was like, in October you slide, in November you dive. Yeah, it's Vegas. You got to take a chance. Yep. You know, thinking about what you just said, I have gone back. Some of the videos that Washington put out this year, one of my favorite pieces of it was when they had that Daily Wire guy say that Oregon's going to win this game. They're just tougher. They're just better. And then watching Washington win at both every point of attack almost all game. Like you were saying, the offensive line dominating the defensive line, the defensive line getting pressure on Bonix all day, the physicality of the secondary. I mean, my God, this team just hit. <laughs> McFarland, who is not our fan, like he's most of the time he just doesn't care about Washington at all. The night after the game, talked about a lot of people thought he said everybody thought Oregon was the more physical team, and I'm like wrong. Yeah thought that and then he repeated it today he's complimenting washington because he obviously didn't think we were that good and then he said it again today the exact same quote uh you know sunday morning and i just keep saying to myself you don't know yeah because you aren't paying attention you probably watched highlights of our first game and that's it 100 percent. and i i am curious as people start digging deeper into this team really understand the flow of this season. If opinions might change about the line, um, you know, you put Washington's brand up against Texas's brand. I mean, burnt orange is the biggest brand in college football. So they're going to get some form of brand line. But I think as people really dig into this and, and really start to be introduced to this Washington program, I think that you're going to see some opinions go uh, change. Go ahead, Leah. I was just going to say thank you for bringing up Brand. This is an opportunity, as I've said all season. We're in the college football playoff now. This is where Troy Dannon earns his keep. That you are in a situation where for the next month, 
The Block W is going to be on ESPN every day. We're going to be talking about every day. We need to hype that up like nobody's business. And we need to use that as a recruiting tool. I know Kaylin DeBoer is all over that. But like in terms of our athletic department and our leadership, and even as far as the president of the university, being in the college football playoff is a huge opportunity if for no other reason than marketing. And we are the weak link of the four schools that are in the college football playoff. But we have every intention of making this a very regular occurrence moving forward, especially with the 12 team layout next year. So we need to get started. We need to get, hit the ground running and see what we can do as far as like, that's going to be a very permanent fixture in the future. And you, everybody in the world, everybody in the United States needs to get used to it. Yep. Uh, Washington then goes down at the end of the f- end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, takes the lead for the final time of the, uh, of the game. Oregon then punts. And after that punt, I was very, very confident that Washington was going to get win this game. I know coach your answer to this, but I'll tell you that I was not surprised in the least bit when Quentin Moore caught the touchdown to put Washington out of Oregon's reach, essentially, even with the late, the touchdown that they had Quentin Moore, you and I both have done quite a bit around recruiting and scouting. Quentin Moore is a local guy that ended up having to go to Independence Community College, and he was a receiving tight end there. He's a great blocker, and that's what he's done here. Husky fans who who might look at uh, you know your, your receiving tight ends, they're going to know who Quentin Moore is in the seasons to come. When when next year it's Josh Cuevas uh, and Quentin Moore as your top two targets uh, in the tight end room, but that that was not a surprise move in the least bit to me you so um i was nerding out on that last drive uh, oh my god because now we got to go back further um we do run rpo but it's a very safe very specific rpo the way oregon runs their rpo and usc and lincoln riley run their rpo is different than what we do they showed a new wrinkle earlier in that drive running RPO and hitting the quick pass and, and and just kind of spreading it out a little bit. Now they're keying on DJ. They know we have to run the clock and we're getting the ball out into the flats and into the intermediate zone. On the touchdown play, they flat out stole USC's, Lincoln Riley's split back, which we never run unless we put tight ends in the backfield for pass bro. So it's a, it's a, basically, I don't know what they call it, but it's an RPO triple option. You have two backs in the backfield. The flow goes the opposite way for the, for the running back in case you're going to hand off. And what USC and Oregon do is they, or what USC does, they slip the other back into the flat, which would be the Quentin Moore. Oregon and what we did kind of copying them was more blocks down than he slips to the flat. You have to cover the run on the other side. You have to cover Michael keeping the ball. And then if anybody comes up, Quentin's in the flat wide open. We freaking stole Oregon's play. And <laughs> beat him with it. <laughs> and then to hear uh, Grub, I think it was Grub who said it after the game. We just installed that play this week. Those psychopaths were watching Oregon film so much. They said, why don't we just freaking steal this? <laughs> I was going crazy. I didn't even know about that quote until we got back to the hotel. I was jumping up and down. I was like, Quentin Moore. 
Yeah. I've been saying for a while that Quentin Moore is his own worst enemy because he's so good at the pass pro and the blocking mm-hmm. that he never has a chance. He's got so many weapons on the jet. He's on the Will Disley arc. Yes. Disley, all he did was block, block, block. And then that final season and that comeback against Utah where he was the primary receiver down the field. And all of a sudden he's like, wait, he just got drafted by the Seahawks. Will Disley is a very financially stable man who three years of three years, four years of college, he was a defensive lineman. And then he was a blocker. He was an extra tackle. He was an extra tackle. Yeah. And now he is a viable NFL tight end. Quentin Moore has more athletic ability than Will Disley. Yes. There's absolutely no reason he can't follow the same path. I am happy for that kid. I'm ecstatic for this team, but I'm so happy for that kid that he got his moment to shine. What year is he coach? Oh man, he's all right. So he's got at least one year left. He might have two. He's a junior and a, or a sophomore. Yeah. Okay, so that's great because that means that we're going to be able to feature him moving forward. Oh, it's it's Quentin Moore and Josh Cuevas. I mean, the tight end room is just fine next year. I'm still um, shocked that Josh isn't getting more targets because that guy is impossible to cover too. Trevor, you made a comment that Rome is the reason for DJ's touchdown. And he is also the reason for Quentin Moore. I mean, Quentin Moore is the beast on his own, but the double coverage on Rome. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what um, happens when you don't prepare for an entire roster. You just prepare yeah. for two players. 100%. In all the uh, film they've watched of Washington, they never thought they would have to defend that play. <laughs> that's I got the yeah. vibe. I got the vibe just like following it, even like from my JCAP updates and watching it today that Oregon was reading their own headlines that they really thought that all they were going to have to do is show up and the Huskies were just going to keel over. They were not expecting a fight. And it took them a long time to get used to the fact that, yeah, we're here to punch you in the mouth. And sorry, not sorry. You can either do this or you can go home. But they didn't, they were not expecting a fight. That was clear. So that was just my, that was my take on it. What did we say last week? What did we talk about last week? Oregon hasn't been in a fist fight since Seattle. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they've lost both of them. They merely adopted the dark. Born <laughs> in it. Up yours, Oregon. Yeah. So Oregon scores a touchdown. Uh, it was a fingertip away from being incomplete, but it is what it is. They score the touchdown. Washington needs two first downs. When Jalen McMillan caught that first first down, that was honestly that was one of the more emotional moments for me uh for a big play like that for for McMillan who used his knees and faked and exploded to that outside for that first down I I just I I was so unbelievably happy for him then of course you have the hold and Dylan Johnson and that beautiful offensive line opens it up he goes for the first down there's a uh there's a video of an Oregon fan freaking out and then yelling that he should have gone to San Jose, uh, San Diego, San Jose state to become a veterinarian. Uh, just hilarious. Um, Dylan, John, we're going to go through and we're just going to talk about players here in a second. But as soon as he went over that line and got down, Washington was going to win. They were going to sleep easy, not having to worry about the college football playoff committee and boo Radley and all of those people who, set a precedence today that's not going to matter because the 14 playoff is going away but told on themselves and 
not having to worry about that because they just went out and beat Oregon for the second time when nobody thought they could outside of Seattle. It's, it's, it was just, it was a beautiful thing. What were your thoughts on the onside kick? Were you shocked that they did it when they did? No, I, nothing no, no, about no. Oregon shocks me. Nothing about Oregon um, shocks me. I want to say though, on the, uh, on the hold, the hold call, it was, you know, he was extended outside the framework. It was kind of like they could call it. They couldn't, I don't have a problem with that. But did anybody see the face mask on the tackle yes. of Dylan yes. Johnson on the same play? However, I didn't see it till the replay. No, I, I saw it. I saw it when I got home today, and I, and I you know, was watching the game again. I, I got home yesterday late night, but uh, we had a three-hour delay. That was awesome. Uh, but I was watching. I was like, "Hey, wait a minute! How did they not see that? You just took him down with a face mask." The odds of you getting a first down when you're trying to run out the clock when it's when you get a holding penalty first and twenty astronomical. Mm-hmm. I will say that the the genius of that drive was the out route to McMillan when they're they think you're going to run the ball and they're like mm-hmm. we can't trust these guys to just run the ball because Mike Pennant's a, he's he's a wild card man he's just going to do whatever he can to break our backs so even though they're thinking run. Once they got this, like, you know, first and 20, second and 17, whatever it was, there was absolutely no thought that we were going to get the first down. We were just counting. We were watching the play clock and doing the math. I'm like, okay, we're going to have to punt this with like 15 seconds left. And then, yep. Oh, my God. I hope that we, oh, my God. I hope we, we get a good punt off. And the, the cutback king, Dylan Johnson, along with that ridiculous offensive line with Parker, and Troy pulling around the edge and Roger Rogers cave in block where he um, on the final run, Roger came down and pinned the defensive tackle and just hung him up like, like a shirt in his closet, just hung him up there and, and just still shot. He just never let him go. He was in perfect position. <laughs> the offensive line basically said, I know that, you know, what we are going to do right now. And you cannot stop us. It was poetic. How effective has that pitch to either side been all year? I will say that that's the exact same play that everybody freaked out about when we fumbled against UCLA last year on the road Mm. near the goal line. And it's like, why are we pitching the ball? We didn't execute it. But the great thing is um, when we run the ball now and we run guard tackle counter and we pull people and you really have to bring your numbers because Troy's coming around the other side and he's going to destroy you. Seahawks, are you watching Troy Fautanu? I'm just asking. Um, mm. they, have to, they have to bring numbers and respect it. And then they'll run the bunch formation and they'll do the wide pitch. And our and the key is our wide receivers and our tight ends are blocking like offensive linemen out on the perimeter. And they don't have numbers. It is a math game. If you lose the math equation, you lose the play. 99 times out of 100. So they're just keeping people honest. Again, using every blade of grass. And just when you think you know what they're going to do, they're just going to, you know, Mike's going to drop back and he's going to make a, 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 a 99th percentile throw that, most college quarterbacks can't make. Kayla, was at that point when he crossed the first down line, is that when the tears started? And were you watching it with your dad? (laughs) 
My dad was working the clock for a basketball game. Oh! And so I was texting him updates, and then he finally, like, he had made it home almost about that time or a little bit before. Um, So he got to watch the end. So we didn't get to watch it together, but we FaceTimed right when that clock read zero, and it was an amazing amazing moment for sure especially I mean he's kind of gone through just as much as I have and I watched it with he and both of us like even today like I don't think we slept really after that uh, Friday night because it was just like wow this just happened and it was I, I, I had a feeling Washington was going to win, but I was at the same time, I was like, I, I can't. I can't tell myself that they for sure did. Washington is your Pac-12 champs. It's the final Pac-12 championship game. It's by far the best Pac-12 championship game we've seen. I want to ask Coach, because as a coach, I'm sure you have to have these kinds of talks, but moving into the CFP, where Washington's trying to take down Texas and then trying to take down either Michigan or Bama if they survive. I don't think Washington can give up 21 and answer and win. So how can you prevent or even fix that during this three-week span? Unlike some of the other games, I felt like that was they were just kind of victims of the circumstance and the timing and the halftime and, and just the amount of time between drives and then obviously people go in, they, they they make adjustments at halftime. So now you're kind of playing catch up. But again, if if you're a basketball player and you're a shooter and you haven't shot since the first quarter and then they send you out to hit the game winner, um, you're not going to be in rhythm. So that's not as nearly as dramatic as just maybe not being on an offensive drive for an hour in real time. But um, I honestly thought that 90% of what they did on Friday was like, wow, that was just incredible game planning really good execution. They could have hit a couple other plays. I'll tell you what, that uh, when we, in the first half, when we had a chance to, we had a punt, we had a chance to go down and score another touchdown and Jalen put a double move on somebody and the guy grabbed him. Mike held the ball as long as he could and then he lofted it up, but he couldn't get under it. If that dude doesn't grab Jalen, that's another touchdown and there's nobody behind him. Honestly, this game, like I said earlier, this game could have been 27, 30 to three at halftime. And at that point, you're starting to think, well, we're going to start running down this clock a little bit. Um, and said it was a 10-point game. But like I said, I don't think this felt like the other games. I think like it just looked like they were in control. They just needed to do it. But getting back to your, your question about the CFP, it always depends on who you're playing. Now, Texas, no, because I think they have the most, besides us, they have the other most explosive offense left in the field if we were playing michigan i would say that if we play really good defense we could we could kind of take our time and pick our shots and and take our you know get our big plays when we need them they're a very good team but offensively they don't scare me at all they're going to run the ball as much as they can and jj mccarthy's trying to run the ball a little bit get on the perimeter he has the ability to make some plays but he's not consistent like that bama doesn't nearly have the explosive playmakers as they've had in the past, although they're still talented. Jalen Milrose has gotten better during the season, but he's also a kid that, you know, he's going to hurt you with his legs. 
And if you can force him to stay in the pocket like Bo Nix the other night, I think you're going to see the same kind of results. I don't think he's as polished as Bo Nix by any means. I don't think their system is efficient like that. We just saw maybe the toughest offense we'll see all year, but Texas yes. is right there. Yeah, I agree. Um, and they have Xavier Worthy, who did us a huge favor last year in the Alamo Bowl and dropped a bunch of passes. Yeah. He's not doing that this year. They have weapons all over the place. They have, you know, Sanders, who's still there. He's a first-round pick. They've got a really good offensive line. Their sophomore would be a top-10 pick in the draft if he's eligible this year, Banks. Um, they got a good they had a good team around him, and Ewers is better this year than he was last year. Before we really get into the CFP and everything around that, I, I want to take some time and just give you guys the floor to highlight any players or specific plays of this game that haven't been talked about. Uh, and actually, I'm going to start uh, with Dylan Johnson. And it's the 156 yards he had, the touchdowns he had, the pass he had. None of that matters. I mean, it all matters. But his pass protection was um, a clinic of how to get on the field at any level. Um, the way that he picked up blitzing linebackers, the way that he helped with uh, – uh, the, the, the front four gave Mike plenty of time to make the reads and, and, and allow those plays to develop. Uh, it was, it was his p- blitz pickup that allowed for that 45 yard bomb to, uh, Jalen McMillan, just, it, it can't be underscored how important he is, uh, to this program. So, um, I'm just going to quote somebody, and that somebody is me. <laughs> Post, uh, two days ago, 7.19 p.m., Coach V tweets out, Dylan M.F. Johnson, exclamation, pass pro God. Yeah. He was ridiculous, and he has been all year. We've yep. been talking about it. We've said it many times. But safety blitz, free blitzer up the middle, they're occupying everybody else, and he just takes this dude down. That had to hurt. That dude has to have a giant welt on his thigh from where Dylan just cut him down. Yeah. And then the throw to He Jerry. was coming full speed, too. Yeah, from distance. Like, it wasn't like, oh, he's just lined up in the A-gap and he's going to, you know, get a, get a start. Like, he's running full speed. And hitting J-Mac down the field, the big play, that doesn't happen unless Dylan does that. And he did it so many times. It has to be demoralizing when you're a linebacker or safety and you think you're going to have a free run at somebody. And this 220-pound monster (laughs) just torpedoes your dreams. Pass pro God. I mean, Wayne Talapapa was really good at that last year. He makes Wayne Talapapa look like Tybo Rogers trying to block somebody. No offense to Tybo, but it was pretty bad watching him try to pass pro this year. I also think that's what was impressive too about this game for Dylan Johnson is he basically knew that the entire run game was on him. Yeah. It was, he has to pass block. He has to be consistent and get some good runs to help open it up for the receivers and for Penix. And the receivers and Penix did the same thing for him, but to have 152 out of your team's 157 rushing yards. Like that's all him. Especially when it mattered. That was all him. Um, before we move on to anybody else, when you think of this conference and some of the good running backs in it, uh, Dylan Johnson 
of he was a little bit behind Jaden Knott at the beginning of the game. Is he a first? Is he first team Pac-12? Second team Pac-12? I'm trying to think of the other guys in the conference that uh, Bucky Bucky will be up there. Um, they held him 20 yards. They held him to 20 yards. Uh, <laughs> Troy Franklin showed why he wasn't a Bolitnikov finalist. Where where do you where do you put him? Uh, the 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 awards come out Tuesday, Coach. So um, interesting stat uh, in Pac-12 games, Dylan Johnson has the most rushing yards of anybody in the conference. Boom. Over a thousand coming into the game, I believe. He was right there. Yeah. Um, so in conference games, Pac-12, he has more rushing yards than anybody in the conference. He passed and touchdowns, right? I'm oh, sorry. And touchdowns, right? Yeah. I was getting, I was he passed pros better than anybody else. And this is a dude that if any, I don't, I had to think about this really hard when he first transferred, there was some question whether he was going to come or not. If he was going to make yeah. it, was he going to stay or was he going to go somewhere else before he even got here in the spring? Oh my God. Can you imagine not having him on this team? Yeah. I think that, he has to be number one, not only for his rushing yards and his touchdowns, which are absolutely outstanding, but exactly what you talked about, Coach. Like, he's not only doing the things that make running backs, statistically, that's what you look at, is like the touchdowns and the yards, but he's also making it possible for pass plays with his pass protection. So if you're looking at all of these things, and like, you know, that's not really a stat that really gets keep, kept track of, but if you're looking at everything, he's got to be first team, for sure. Oh, and also, somebody asked me at the game, they're like, why doesn't he have like 50 catches this year. I thought he was like a pass pro or a pass receiving guy. And my response was. Um, because Michael Penix isn't Bo Nix. Yeah. Because Mississippi state uh, didn't have Rome McMillan. Polk. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, sometimes your best value is you're either going to run the ball or you're going to help us throw the ball by making sure that Michael stays clean. They didn't have uh, Michael Penix. They didn't have a passing game like that. Uh, I know he came from a Mike Leach system, but it was a lot of air raid stuff, check down stuff. Yeah, you're going to catch a lot of balls because they're not necessarily going to challenge you down the field. But when he was asked to catch the ball this year, he was great at it. Others? Are we just talking offense or can we move on to different positions? Don't care. This is This I... is free for anybody. Awesome. Well, I have to say that like after – an injury um, middle of the season. I was loving the way that Cam Fab showed up. Yeah. Absolutely loving, like you know, especially his you know kind of windmill tackle of Turd Ferguson in the open field. That was delicious, and I, I just really appreciate the arc that he's had because last year he was kind of not playing fully to his potential, but this year he's not only had in injuries, but he's come back and improved after the injuries. So shouts to Cam. He did awesome. I think offense, it's always been Leah's loved her O-line. I've always been, yeah, O-line's great, but Troy really, really, really stuck out there for me on that left side. Just the plays that he made, the holes that he opened up, I thought that was great. And I was like, yep, if we do offensive MVP, I know Leah's taking the O-line like always. So I definitely have to throw that one out Actually, I was, I took the notes from coach because he said I was cheating. And... (laughs) 
I said, okay, you know, I, I would like to, I'd like to give my flowers from the O-line to Dylan Johnson because he was basically an O-lineman, but I, I identified Troy Falcano as well. I was like, this guy, for being as big as he is, he moves, he's cat quick, he is incredibly nimble, and he was, yeah, that left side protection all night long, just awesome performance. So that was, he was also um, my O-lineman on the game. I was telling T, I was like, our offensive linemen are so big, not like chunky boy big, but like brick wall built big. And that our staff team. has done such a good job. Our guards are enormous. Yeah. yeah. They make our tackles look like average looking height <laughs> guys. Um, and then we've got, you know, Parker's the runs of litter, who's just performing at an all pack 12 level. He's a top 10 nationally ranked PFF, you know, graded center, I think still. And he's 280 something pounds soaking wet, but all he does is just move people and, and get to the second level and just dominate. Um, my player is, and I don't, I, I told myself I wasn't going to care if anybody said him already, I'll, I'll repeat it, but it's Jalen McMillan, Jalen McMillan, Jalen McMillan for opening up this offense and giving us our, you know, all of our cylinders back pumping he, he was so impressive. We, I, I swear to God, I was sitting around a lot of people who were inebriated. <laughs> when I pointed out that Jalen McMillan did not have a knee brace on, I got tackled by a bunch of people hugging, jumping. The game hadn't even started yet. And people were jumping up and down, screaming and, and like throwing me in different directions. Um, Jalen, you know, <laughs> Like I said, he was a holding, you know, he was the guy grabbing him away from having another, you know, big play down the sideline for a touchdown. Yep. It was, it's just, it proves that when we got all our dudes, you can't cover everybody. And Mike made all the right plays when he needed to. But Jalen gave him the extra security blanket. Because they were definitely keying in on Rome. There was a lot of double coverage and help over the top with him on Friday. I just wonder what this team would have been like if Jalen McMillan doesn't get hurt. At Michigan State. I think we'd still be 13 and 0, Trevor. I you know what? I agree with you, but I don't think Boo Radley would have had all the conversations that he did with the playoff committee. I don't think we would I... have been in the final four at any point once uh people uh programs in front of us started losing. We would have I been think we'd be number one right now. I think we'd be number one right now. I agree. Uh defensive side of the ball, man. Um Jabbar Mohammed. He <laughs> thanks, coach. Uh he locked Trey Franklin down. He, that side of the field was not available. And honestly, you can say Jabbar Muhammad. You could say Cam Fab, which was already said. Uh, Dominic Hampton, um, Mish, of course, EJ. The first read wasn't there. There, the coverage, especially when they were aggressive, was so good that. Bonex, as you were saying, coach, was not able to play on rhythm. And that just made all the difference. Everything was hard for Oregon all day. And, and you know, that's going to lead to some other guys getting a lot of uh, shout outs on this. But the secondary was was great. And Jabbar Muhammad was elite. I would definitely go even Tuli, the Tuli Gasanoa. That man, I felt like he almost spied Bucky Irving. He just knew where he was at all times. And I'm counting, he had three tackles on Bucky himself. I mean. Was it him or was it uh, uh, Fatu that 
tackled him uh, with his back. Who was that? First, that was Thule. It was, there was a play where he literally caught him at the line of scrimmage and just stuck him <laughs> in the ground yeah. like, yeah. like a fence post. And it was like, oh, man, you guys are freaking trouble. <laughs> also, MVP for the umpire in the like first or second try. <laughs> I, I, I was like, defensive MVP. <laughs> defensive MVP. I mean, Bucky, uh, not Bucky, uh, Bo hit him. I mean, it, it was, I, that ball wasn't getting there. The uh, Was it, was it uh, Thaddeus? that that was in coverage on that he he was going to get it as well but the umpire made sure he got in the stat line and again they sat down on the short stuff he had to double clutch yep it came off of that oh my god that poor dude he tried to get out of the way and they had a camera on the guy too yeah they replayed it too. like that's not fair <laughs> put that up there they had a feeling they were like we're gonna get some good action here <laughs> leah who do you got uh, did you say camp fab I said Cam Fab, oh, and yeah. then I kind of echoed Troy Fautanu for yeah. offense. But like, you know what? I yeah, I just feel like Jabbar. Honestly, like he's the no fly zone. I mean, shout to Julio Rodriguez, but he he really is. I mean, like at your own peril testing that guy because he's incredibly athletic, and he came up with the, like the new gif of like drawing the drawing the square and then two thumbs down and then and the sword like. Come on. Like, those guys are awesome. And I can't wait to see what they do against Texas. I can't wait. Man, you're taking all my all my ideas. <laughs> um, I know he didn't have a chance to make a whole lot of, like, stats and slash uh, splash plays, but Braylon Trice is still somebody who had to be reckoned with. Um, he maybe had one or two snaps where he didn't, like, maybe – the play where Bo ran for a huge gain down the sideline because oh. Braylon jumped in the air instead of just containing. That was maybe his one negative, but one of my favorite plays of the game that didn't really show up in the stat sheet was when he hip tossed Josh Connerly. Oh my God. Yeah. He chucked him like he was a rag doll. Yeah. And Oh my God. I mean, I love, <laughs> but I mean, dude, he's like, I'm like, I screamed. I saw it happen in real time. And in front of my whole section, I screamed, how much did you get paid to get thrown like a little girl? <laughs> so just on that coach, I watched that today on ESPN and, and even Kirk and um, Kirby were like, oh my God, Braylon just tossed that guy like he stole a sandwich. That like That guy's like 50 pounds heavier than him. Oh yeah. my God. When I when I came back and, and watched the game today, I forgot that I made a mental note saying, I wonder if anybody else saw that. But apparently um, the they one hundred percent did. You will absolutely delight <laughs> listening to that coach because all of your sentiments were completely echoed. Yeah, I saw it when I watched it again tonight and I was like, Oh my God. I just I kept rewinding it. Because it's kind of out of it's almost out of frame. You can't see the whole play take place, but you can see Josh's feet coming up off the ground and 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 leaving. And I'm not coach. To, are you a masochist or something? What's going on with you? I'm a football coach, and uh, if, if our guys are doing that to the other guys, um, you know, preaching the whole "we are the most physical team in this conference" thing, you know, Oregon's so physical, blah 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 blah. No, they're not. They're paper tigers, man. Yeah, Trice actually. Uh, was 
fourth on the team with four tackles, three solo and a pass defense. So, uh, fan, just unbelievable job by this defensive group, this offensive group holding, uh, on paper, one of the best offenses to uh, another close to season low. Just took it to them. Um, I love this team. Anybody have any thoughts before we move on to uh, the CFP? Honestly, um, I just wanted to give a shout out to um, somebody who's been getting a lot of heat. Uh, Coach Grubb called nearly a flawless football game. And even on the interception, this scheme was wide open, like, yeah. like wide open. They had somebody else wide open too. I forgot who it was. Um, the mix of the pass, the mix of the run, throwing in Oregon's own RPO against them, <laughs> installing it this week. Those freaking psychos in that coaching staff are just, they're earning every penny and they're all about to get a raise. Speaking of that, one of the other jobs that Troy Dannon has to do probably before we hit the CFP is back up that Brinks truck for our man, Kalen DeBoer. Got to do it. Got to make him paid commensurate with the biggest boys in college football, because every time the Huskies do something great, they're going to be knocking on our door and we need to have him getting paid handsomely with an ironclad buyout clause. And, and I assume that's coming. You've already seen the first domino with Courtney Morgan getting uh, their promotion to general manager, uh, which I would guarantee comes with a pay raise. Um, moving uh, on. I'm sorry. I just said I've been hearing stuff about donors stepping up and, yep. and uh, too. you know, as this contract process is going on and the numbers that are being rumored are pretty substantial. Yeah. Kalen DeBoer is going to be Washington's coach for a very, very long time. Moving on to the, the college football playoff, the rankings in general, there's obviously Washington is number two. They're heading to New Orleans to play Texas in another pseudo uh, road game. We did this already last year going to the state of Texas to beat Texas. So it's nothing that's out of nothing that concerns me in that sense. The only thing that sucks is I know that the plans of a lot of people we're going to be headed to Pasadena. And, and as of right now, it's actually more affordable to fly to Dubai than it is to New Orleans from Seattle. So um, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, at least people asking uh, Alaska Airlines to get some more flights there so Husky fans can get there. But, uh, you know, the story of the CFP was – after the first two, what were they going to do? Were they going to keep precedence? And and you saw these wheels start to turn early when they started saying that it's not the foremost deserving team, it's the four best teams. And that's just not the case that uh, of the way that the CFP has worked in the past. It's always been the, the most deserving. TCU wouldn't have been in the CFP last year if that was the case, but they were. Florida State with the third string quarterback goes out and beats Louisville with former Cal quarterback Jack Plummer, which was uh, it, every time I saw him on a a team with a number in front of their in front of their name blew my mind. Um, they leave them out and put in uh, in favor of Bama, uh, who did win the SEC championship, knocked off number one Georgia, but had lost to Texas. Um, 
That's if you wanted the four, yeah, if you, yes, if you wanted the four best teams, this is what you wanted, but they changed the game and, you know, it sets precedence, but it doesn't matter because the CFP has gone away, uh, but it just feels real. Feels yucky. Yeah. yeah. It's ESPN so, and the SEC in bed together. I thought about this and um, they really wanted more than anything. They didn't want to exclude the SEC by any means. They wanted to put George in, but they said, well, they're one loss and then Bama beat them. But if we put Bama in, Texas beat them and they're a blue blood. And if they come complaining, they beat Bama on the road by 10 points. Now we have to put Texas in. So what you've done is you've shoehorned a team in, created a problem where you needed to shoehorn the other team in, and Florida State gets hung out to dry when all they did was win all their games. Yeah. They won a conference championship with a third-string freshman quarterback. Their defense played lights out, and they're screwed because their quarterback went down and gave everybody an opportunity to say, ah, we don't trust you guys moving forward. But all of the politics that are involved in this are disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. To, I mean, piggyback off of all of those things as well. There's many issues I have with the CFP with those four. And I mean, would Florida state have actually been super, super, super competitive with Michigan if they wanted to put them at four and put Texas at three or however they wanted to do that? I don't know. But you look at if you, I mean, they wanted to make the argument that you lose their starting quarterback and now you're under your third string. Okay, cool. But their backup who has been consistent for them is just a concussion. He's not going to be out in a month. And then on top of that, this third string quarterback put up more offensive yards than Michigan did with their starting quarterback. And so if you want to sit here and you want to say that, you know, this is a key injury and they're not the same. It's okay, but so are you going to punish Michigan? Like, if you want to really compare these things, and I think I think that's the issue for me with this go of four is that there's just certain narratives that they want to bring up where they see fit, and then they want to ignore ones where they don't see fit. Games don't matter. Yeah, or it's not it's not a team sport anymore. Like, Oregon could have gone out and actually broke Michael Planks's leg, and then Washington probably would have been left out because that's clearly what the committee's saying. It would be interesting to see, though, if if Georgia had one last name, but not convincingly, and their quarterback or their best player, maybe it's Brock Bowers, I don't know, but, like, somebody had a an injury that was clearly season-ending. Would they have left Georgia out? Absolutely nope. not. No. Absolutely not. And – they would have been 13 and 0 with a grave injury to their best player and they still would have been in. So ultimately you have to say is this is about the conference. It has very little to do with the players. And that is just, that is a huge shame. And it makes me very deeply grateful that Washington has two top 10 wins under their belt. In addition to Arizona, in addition to Oregon state, because ultimately like, yes, like, I don't think that we were ever on the chopping block, but it didn't, it actually wasn't because we were 13 and out. It was because of the strength of our schedule. Yep. Really? Like that's the saddest thing is that like, I, I mean, I think in the beginning of the year, it's like, if you're, what do you think it's going to take to get into the CFP? And we all said like probably 12 and one and turns out 13 and 0 isn't enough. That's yeah. sad. Well, Washington is in 
the playoff committee is a farce. It's the ACC should be uh, furious. Uh, Florida Mike Norvell wrote a very strongly worded uh, press release, which I 100% agree with. Um, if we were a Florida State podcast, I would not be here right now. <laughs> I'd be burning everything. I, I got to tell you, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to be in Tallahassee right now. That, that is, you just got, Florida State's a big brand. This and is a team that got, won a, a national championship not that long ago. Yeah. And has been in the CFP twice already. Back to back years. Yeah. Yeah, one they one with Jameson, and then they, they lost, lost to Oregon. Yep. Thank you, Cardo Jones. <laughs> and yeah, anyhow, I, I, I'm disgusted by it. Um, but you know what? I looking into the future, I feel really confident that Washington go out can go out and handle business uh in the first round. And uh I would put up put them up against either Michigan or Bama which I wouldn't have said in 2016. Okay. Uh, other PAC 12 schools that ended, ended in the CFP rankings. Uh, Oregon state comes in at 19. Arizona comes in at 14. Oregon comes in at eight and Oregon, the PAC 12 continues to get disrespected. Uh, <laughs> Oregon has lost two games all year to one of the best teams in the country. Say it with a straight face, Trevor. Don't disappoint me. <laughs> <laughs> they're gifted uh a, a new year's six bowl and it's against freaking number 23 liberty <laughs> university hey you can't discount the rivalry there trevor that, excuse me excuse me that is so insulting um hey six percent have already picked liberty in the bowl pickums. look <laughs> well yeah because if you're if you're an oregon draftable player are you playing against liberty so far bo's the only one who said he wants to play and then when okay. when asked about it further dan lanning said he would let those guys make their own announcements which doesn't sound a whole lot you know it's like he's got a whole lot of confidence and a lot of guys sticking around bo's waiting for after the heisman uh ceremony to to actually declare for the nfl draft the watch be- party for Michigan, their reaction when they found out they were playing Bama. A oh, was chef's that kiss. Was. That was chef's kiss. Chef's Absolutely. kiss. But I would have traded that oh. for an Oregon watch party when they found out they were playing Liberty. That I, I'm, I don't. I, do you remember when Washington game. finally got back to a bowl game at six and six and played like 10 and two Nebraska? I thought you were talking about much- last, like last year after that 2021. Oh, I was like, man. Yeah, I do. No, the God watching. Remember, do you remember? Do you remember when you were the, the Beatles? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like Nebraska wanted no part of being in that bowl game. They had national championship aspirations, and then they have to play a six and six Washington team that they already destroyed in Seattle. How do you think Oregon feels right now? They they, I feel like. The ESPN and the powers that be, they were like, they were Andrew Bernard 
And then he was given the the junior name. I don't remember his brother's name, but when his little brother was born, they thought he was more like dad. So they gave the name to the little brother and found Andy's name in a in a baby book. Like they My just parents threw felt that he out. really embodied the name. Yeah, that's right. Poor Nardog. Like they just threw them, they just threw them out. It's I have a lot of duck friends. I that I it's insulting. To make another Batman reference, because Coach Bees was legendary last podcast, was I literally pictured in Dark Knight when the Joker presses the button on the hospital behind some explodes. And (laughs) that was the bull selection committee and the back was just Oregon. I don't know. It's 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 a shot at the Pac-12 because the reality is I think the biggest pretender in that group that's in the pack in the uh, new year six uh, is a hundred percent Penn state. And I think a great thing for Penn state who couldn't beat anybody relevant on their schedule is to play somebody irrelevant, like Liberty. And uh, I'm signed me up for Oregon Ole Miss. That would have been a really fun matchup. The other matchups you have uh, Missouri, Ohio state, uh, Ole Miss, Penn state. And then the could be in the CFP, Georgia, Florida state. So that rounds out your 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 six. Terrible. As Charles Barkley would say, terrible. Like, terrible, isn't he? It's I, I don't I, I don't hate the story of Missouri and Ohio State. You have offense versus no uh, offense and no defense versus no defense and an offense. And then you have the Georgia Florida State game might be good. Uh, Vegas has that as a two-score favorite for Georgia. That's actually my tangent. Is it? Is if you're Florida State, do you say, nah, like we're not, like this is disrespectful and players are going to opt out for the draft? Or do you think that Georgia takes them seriously and Florida State's going to come in and just put it to them? Like I need an early prediction on this game from all three of you. So, Coach, I have a question for you. I know that they they do, they definitely don't do this for football. And Kayla, this does come back around to you. In Washington, when uh, in baseball and I believe in basketball in the state tournament, when the two uh, the the two teams that lose in the semifinal end up having to play a game for like third and fourth, and it's it really is kind of like the joke of nobody wants to play in it. Everybody's done. It's Honestly, like it's for the guys, maybe your seniors that don't get to play very much that end up getting to play in that game. Nobody cares about it because the prize is gone. Do you guys have that down in Arizona for your other sport? I know they don't do it in football, but the other sports. Oh, sure. Um, wrestling's a big one too, when you're you losing the semis and now you gotta battle it out, or you're losing the quarters and you're going for five and six. And yeah, I mean, you know. I think it's better in the individual sports because, you know, it's just you out there. So you're, you're going right. to put your sport foot forward. Um, yeah. This really does kind of feel for these teams, kind of like a loser's bracket, a new year's six bowl game, or, you know, a, a you know, big time bowl game is like, you know, in this age of NIL, it's like, even back when we were in the Rose bowl against Ohio state, you know, Taylor Rapp was maybe banged up maybe saving himself for the NFL draft. You, you know, it was kind of ambiguous. Um, unless it's the playoff, I mean, everybody else just kind of like, eh, whatever. I wonder if NIL, and if you disagree, please let me know. I wonder if the NIL is going to save the Bulls. 
because when uh, those NIL contracts get written up, I wonder if there's going to be a clause in there that if you're available and eligible to play in the bowl game, that you have to do that in order to fulfill your, uh, your contractual obligation. I can't imagine unless it's like a seven figure NIL contract that an athlete would sign that just because <clears throat> you're then just betting that you're not going to be hurt if your team goes to a bowl game that like, I can't imagine any good agent being like, yeah, you should sign that. And in the, in the, uh, in the old days, it was like, Hey, if a guy's going to come back and play, he's going to like Steve Atman, his last year had an insurance policy, you know, that type of deal. But I can't imagine like if you were a recruit and that was part of the condition, you might just go somewhere where they say, like, don't worry about it. We're, we compete for championships okay. here. We're not in the championship, then you're free to do whatever you want to do. Okay. I mean, it's just a guess. There could very much be, but. Yeah. Maybe a bonus, maybe an incentive for staying. Yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. Thanks guys for doing this. I just, I am so grateful for this team. I'm so grateful for you guys. Uh, falling in love with this team over the last two years, what Kalen DeBoer has done in such a short amount of time, what Michael Penix, the receivers, the edge rushers coming back, everybody spurning the NFL to come back for this one last ride and to have their first, uh, first goal accomplished is something that they get to celebrate for a little bit before they lock back in to start preparing for Texas. And I just can't be more grateful <clears throat> for this team. This team will go down as as my favorite team to date. Um, Michael Penix has cemented himself on the Mount Rushmore of Huskies. Uh, the the way that Rome and Jalen and Jalen have played, they will be talked about for generations of Husky fans. Um, Braylon Trice and ZTF, the story of ZTF is, is just something that will will be telling our kids and grandkids and that our kids will know um, in a very similar way that the way that I see, you know, Mario Bailey, Steve Entman, Greg Hoffman, um, uh, Mark Bruner, Warren Moon, guys like that. These names are going to live on much, many, many years after not only have they gone to the NFL, but have retired and and are able to come back and be uh, appreciated for who they are. And I think you're seeing a lot of Husky Hall of Famers playing right now. Absolutely. And just to jump on that, too, is that the University of Washington has a movie directed by George Clooney highlighting the boys in the boat story that comes out Christmas Day. And it is just, it is so fitting that people all over the country and the world can go to the movie theater right before our game about the magic that we have in Seattle, what it means to be a Husky and an amazing uplifting story that features the University of Washington right before we go to play the biggest game in our history to date. So like, it just, it, it just feels written in the stars right now. It's just, it's giving me goosies as Kayla would say. So um, this team has had, just an amazing season of magical moments and all those guys who could have gone to the league last year and chose to stay to make history, make something special happen. Big shouts to them, all of them. Um, this doesn't happen without them and it doesn't happen with this amazing staff that we have. You know, and my dad always talks about how growing up and even into his young adulthood before I was born and even after I was around that when he would turn on an NFL game and they'd show the introduce the starters, it was just littered with Huskies we're there. 
you're going to see, and there's already Huskies littered throughout the NFL. There's going to be even more come next year. Yeah. You know, we keep drawing these parallel parallels to the 91 team and, you know, whether you think that, you know, they were the best ones or, or this group and this, these guys have a chance to do something that no other team has done. Let's go 15 and 0. Yeah. And when I say that, I get a little bit of the goosies as mm-hmm. Leo would say. Because, you know, that national championship team finished 12 and 0. We are now 13 and 0. We are in uncharted territory. When we go and beat Texas, we will be 14 and 0. And when we go to Houston to play Michigan or Alabama, we will have a chance to go 15 and 0 and carve our names in the history books. This group is special. No matter what happens from this point on, I'll preface this, this group is special. It's not like this is gonna happen every single year. We can't be you know, naive and think that this is just, Galen Moore is gonna get some guys in the portal and we're just gonna keep doing this every single year. It's not gonna happen. So, when we won the game, when the game was finalized, when when Dylan Johnson slid down just outside the 20 and the game was officially over, I got grabbed. I got hugged. I got tackled to the ground a little bit. People were in tears. A couple of people were in tears. And it's just like every game I've gone to in the last couple of years has been like this, where people are just so proud and so excited to be a part of this. And we kind of knew it was coming last year. And when we all left the Alamo Bowl in San Antonio last December, we felt like this was the verge of being the the vaulting into greatness of this year. And every test that they faced, they passed it. They punched Oregon in the mouth twice in one season. Okay. When's that ever going to happen again? So 15 and 0 is the mark for us to kind of look at and say, well, that's how you carve your names on the wall. This team's just living week to week, one and oh. They have a very mature understanding of what it means to be in the moment and to play for each other and to play for themselves and play for their families. I just can't even describe, I I say it again, this is a unique group. If any one or two of these guys goes pro last year, this isn't happening. So no matter how you hold them in regards to the 91 team or the 84 team or whatever, if you're a Husky fan, you have to have an eternal amount of love for this group, this 2023 team. But I kind of think they're going to do that. I, th- I kind of think they're going to finish the damn job this year. Yeah. I mean, four and eight and now Washington two years later has the longest winning streak in college football. We've been on this for over an hour and that's the first time that's been mentioned. It's just that's, that's because there's so it's one of those things that I think earlier in the day, so worked up that Washington missed out on a chance to go to Pasadena and for these fans that are so passionate and love the dogs how expensive it is to get there, how hard it is with only three flights, two, three flights leaving Seattle a day. Like it's unfortunate. I think that for me, 
I was a little worked up about it. I was also worked up for Florida State because I couldn't imagine being them. But this team is just so – they are something else. They didn't hold a watch party today. They are strictly business. And to be the longest winning streak in college football, to not have a watch party, to have that confidence and that kind of mentality, it has been one hell of a ride. Um, Leah does her shout outs every week, but I wanted to <clears throat> shout out a buddy of mine uh, who coaches for Lake Stevens. His name's Eric. He's a teacher. He's a coach. They just won back-to-back 4A state titles. I am so jealous of my buddy, Eric, who now has, he's going to have two rings to my zero, but uh, we're hoping to get one of our own next year. But Eric, uh, if you're listening to this, buddy, congratulations. Yeah, and shout out to everybody who actually, of my friend group, of our tailgate group, who went down to Vegas to watch this game. I couldn't for aforementioned reasons. So shout out Jerry, Dusty, Brett. John, some of them listen to the podcast, some of them don't, but you guys are awesome. Let's keep it rolling. Jake, get well soon, buddy. We'll be back to talk Texas. We got a whole bunch of stuff coming up for you in the coming weeks. Go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Oregon Oregon went Bowen three against the Huskies in the last two seasons. Bow down. Go dogs. Husky Nation, it's the end of the third quarter. Are you looking for the perfect tequila for your next get-together? The answer is born from a hero. Hero de Leon, direct from the prestigious Murguia family, just outside Guadalajara, honoring their great-grandfather who saved Mexico from a horrible civil war. It's authentic, courageous, with great integrity, just like the general. Enjoy the smoothest Blanco tequila you've ever tasted, or the rich flavor of our Reposado, aged for seven months in American bourbon barrels. Or... The ultimate tequila are Añejo, which is aged for 18 months in the same bourbon oak barrels. Go to your favorite liquor retailer or restaurant and ask for Hero de Leon because it's always the end of the third quarter. Imported by Zombie Beverages, Mercer Island, Washington.